Dear listener, a quick warning that this episode has some descriptions of violence, including a brief mention of sexual violence. For most of his 20s, Elvis ran an internet cafe in a small town in the mountains outside Guatemala City. And one day, in 2014, he noticed this girl. She kept coming around to print out homework assignments. The girl's name was Wendy. And Elvis says he started noticing that she was printing out the same assignment over and over again. So he'd tease her. <laughs> he'd say, I just printed this for you yesterday. And Wendy would say, well, print it again, which Elvis took as a sign that they liked each other. Eventually, they started dating. This is Wendy. They'd go to the movies. They'd wander around the mall eating ice cream. Pretty soon, they were inseparable. A year after they started dating, they got married. Elvis was 28. Wendy was 20. Un día inolvidable, un día muy lindo. Wendy says it was an unforgettable day. She especially loved her dress. It was a fairy tale wedding dress with a poofy skirt and pearls all over the bust and a glittery tiara with a veil. Precioso. They moved into an apartment on the lower level of Wendy's parents' home. Wendy was in nursing school. Elvis worked at his internet cafe. It was a sweet, quiet life. But less than a year after their wedding, this was the fall of 2018, Wendy's mom got an anonymous call. The voice on the phone sounds cheerful, but this is not a friendly call. This is an extortion. The caller asks for 20,000 quetzales. That's about 2,600 U.S. dollars. Wendy's teenage brother is there with her mom, and they start to record a video. Wendy's mom says, I don't know if I can pay. I don't have the money. And at that point, the call gets more aggressive. The caller says, if you're not going to pay up, we're going to terrorize you. The caller says he's from one of the largest gangs in Central America. Elvis asked us not to use the name out of fear of retaliation. If you get a call like this and you don't pay up, the cost can be very high. The caller says if you don't pay or if you go file a complaint with the police, they'll kill Wendy's little brother, Danny, who's sitting there listening to the call. They say they'll cut off his limbs one at a time, and finally, his head. The caller knows a lot about the family. He knows their names and where they live and what they all do for a living. And after Danny, he turns to Elvis and Wendy. He says they're watching Elvis. And that if the family doesn't pay up, they'll rape Wendy and dismember her too. And this phone call, it wouldn't be the last. 
From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, how Central Americans who flee their countries to seek asylum in the U.S. face an immigration court system that's increasingly stacked against them. In the summer of 2018, just a couple of months before Wendy's family got that extortion call, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke at a conference for immigration judges. Thank you very much. Thank you. It is great to be with you and see this large crowd, and we'd like to have a bigger crowd next year. We are going to have one next year. And at the time he made this speech, Sessions was in the middle of orchestrating a massive overhaul to how the immigration courts functioned, especially for people seeking asylum. The asylum system is being abused to the detriment of the rule of law, sound public policy, public safety even. Sessions thought that too many people were coming to the U.S. and using asylum as a kind of excuse to get into the country. Asylum was never meant to alleviate all problems, even all serious problems, that people face every day all over the world. So he lays out some of the big changes he's making— like pushing judges to make decisions about cases more quickly. We have to be very productive. Volume is critical. It just is. And narrowing the reasons people can get asylum. In my judgment, this will be a correct interpretation of the law, and it will be your duty, of course, to carry that out. His goal was to change the calculus for people who were heading to the U.S.-Mexico border. The world will know what our rules are, and great numbers will no longer undertake this dangerous journey. The number of illegal aliens and the number of baseless claims will fall. Now, as you may remember, Sessions resigned about five months after this speech. Thank you all, and God bless. But the changes he was making to immigration courts they would live on without him. Our story today is co-reported with Documented, a nonprofit news site that covers immigrants in New York City, co-founded by Max Siegelbaum and Mazin Sedakhmed. In 2019, they sent reporters inside the immigration court system from when they opened until they closed, five days a week for three months to sit in on hundreds of immigration hearings. And what they observed there was an asylum system that has become an increasingly punishing process to navigate, especially for Central Americans. Documented brings us the couple at the center of our story today, Wendy and Elvis. At the beginning of this piece, you heard from Latino USA producer Alice Escarce. She's now going to continue telling their story. And a note here that we're identifying them only by their first names for their safety. Alisa picks it up from here. After that first extortion call, Wendy's family got really scared. They knew these were not empty threats. The news was full of stories about people who'd been killed after failing to pay an extortion. But Wendy says her family didn't have the money. And so instead, that same day, they decided to do exactly what they'd been told not to. They filed a complaint with Guatemala's public ministry. Elvis says it's like the Guatemalan FBI. They decided to skip the local police because they were worried they were tied up with the gangs. 
which is also common. Dejaron el teléfono, eh, los oficiales pidieron que dejaran el teléfono para poder como atraparlos y hacer la investigación. Wendy's mom left her phone so the authorities could investigate. And a week later, Wendy says the family got a call from the public ministry. The investigation was complete. Fueron mis papás y sí, les entregaron el teléfono. Y ya tenían el nombre de esta persona, de dónde estaba llamando. Y esta persona estaba llamando desde la cárcel. Wendy's parents went to pick up the phone. And Wendy says the investigators told them they knew who was calling. The extortionist was a known criminal, and he was calling from inside a prison. Pues entregaron el teléfono, nos dieron el nombre de esta persona, pero que no podían hacer nada más porque esta persona ya estaba pagando por, por su crimen. Que hasta ahí llegaba la investigación. Wendy says the investigator told them that there wasn't anything they could do. Since the caller was already in prison, that was as far as the investigation would go. We called the public ministry several times to ask about this, but we weren't able to get any more information. But knowing the caller was in prison didn't do much to make Wendy's family feel safer. Gangs in Guatemala often use prisons as a kind of headquarters. The Guatemalan police itself has reported that the vast majority of extortions have a link to a prison. Que él esté ahí no quiere decir que nosotros estemos a salvo, porque tenía más personas que, que se dedicaban a, a eso. Por mandato de él, ¿verdad? Wendy's family figured the caller had plenty of people on the outside doing his bidding. So Wendy's mom closed her laundry service and Elvis packed up his internet cafe and they moved their whole lives to a town three hours away. But over the next couple months, the threats kept coming. They'd get texts with photos of mutilated bodies. At one point, Elvis says he was pulled over by two police officers who recommended he pay the gang. Then a guy on a red motorcycle showed up at their old house looking for them, and he threatened the man who was living there when the man wouldn't tell him where the family had gone. So the family filed another report with the authorities. Y pues solo se quedó la, la denuncia que le hizo porque no hicieron nada. And again, Wendy says, nothing happened. And at that point, the family's calculus started to change. Two months after that first extortion call, Wendy's mom decided that she was going to take Wendy's little brother, Danny, the one who the gang had threatened to chop into pieces, and take him as far away as she could get him. Wendy had two older brothers who'd been living on Long Island for about a decade. And so, in November of 2018, Wendy's mom took Danny and set out to join them. The family started pushing Elvis and Wendy to leave, too. And at first, Elvis resisted. He'd read a lot in the news about how hard life could get for people who tried to cross the border without papers. But then, just after the new year, Wendy got one more piece of information. Yo me hice una prueba de embarazo. Yo tenía una duda de que si estaba embarazada o no. Y salió positiva. Un momento complicado... Wendy took a pregnancy test and it came out positive, which normally would have been great news. They were excited to have their first kid and had already talked about baby names. But this was not the world that they wanted to bring a baby into. And the threatening phone calls were still coming. They decided it was time to go. They were going to the United States to ask for asylum. They left that same month in January of 2019. 
And the trip itself was pretty easy. Coyotes were charging around $5,000 a person at the time. So Elvis sold his car and borrowed some money, and they headed north. En bus este, hasta Veracruz. First by bus to Veracruz on Mexico's Atlantic coast. De Veracruz para allá fue un avión hasta Reynosa. Then by plane to Reynosa, just across the border from South Texas. And at that point, Elvis thought the coyote was going to drop them off at an official port of entry, which is where you're supposed to apply for asylum. But instead, they were taken to the Rio Grande and piled into rafts. Halfway across, they got out and started to walk. The current was strong, but they made it to the other side. As they climbed out of the river, pain ripped through the side of Wendy's belly. And as they started walking through the desert, the pain kept coming. Sentía como pulsaciones, como al caminar eh, me daba jalón. Eh, era un dolor bien feo, fuerte. It was strong and it pulsed through her body as she walked. Wendy remembers walking for about an hour and a half before they were picked up by Border Patrol agents. And she was scared as they lined them up and drove them to a detention center. They took their photos and fingerprints, and Wendy told the officers about the pain in her belly. And then, in a moment that seems more meaningful now than it did at the time, she says the agents started dividing them into cells, men on one side, women on the other. Wendy remembers hugging Elvis for a few minutes, and then she followed the other women into the women's cell. Elvis watched her walk away. He says their hair was all messy, and Wendy's pregnant belly was just starting to poke out. That night, Wendy says guards took her to the hospital to have the pain checked out. She was worried about the baby, but the doctor examined her and he told her the baby was fine. She was relieved and was taken back to the detention center. But when she got back, no Elvis. He wasn't in the cell where she'd seen him before she left. So Wendy went around and she asked the women in her cell if they knew where he'd been taken. But all they could tell her was that he'd been moved somewhere. They didn't know where. And then the next day, Wendy was told she was going to be released because she was pregnant. ICE lets out pregnant women on a case-by-case basis. So she would get to wait for her immigration court date from her brother's home on Long Island. Her older brother got her a bus ticket to Dallas and a flight to New York. She'd never traveled alone before. She spent the whole trip crying. She didn't want to separate from Elvis, and she didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't even know where he was. Coming up on Latino USA... While Wendy settles into New York, Elvis embarks on a very different journey. Stay with us. No te vayas.
Support for NPR and the following message come from ATO Records, featuring the new album from Los Angeles psychedelic soul band Chicano Batman. Invisible People is available now in limited edition vinyl, CD, and digital streaming services. We're spending more time at home than ever before. So now's a great time to finally adopt a dog, right? Socialization is going to be harder because socialization and social distancing uh, are definitely at odds. <laughs> so before you decide to adopt a canine companion during quarantine, listen and subscribe to NPR's Life Kit. We're back. And before the break, Wendy was released from immigration detention and had gone to stay with her family on Long Island. But Elvis was kept behind. Latino USA producer Alisa Scarce picks up the story from here. Back in Texas, Elvis was actually still at the same detention facility. And he'd been assuming he'd be released along with Wendy. I thought he was going to go with her or something. But no. But then, he says, a guard told him that Wendy had gotten out. And he had a sinking feeling that he was going to be in detention for a while. This is the point where Wendy and Elvis's journeys would split. Elvis would end up navigating the asylum process from inside a detention system that has ballooned under Trump. Between the end of the Obama administration and July of 2019, the number of people in ICE detention has increased by more than a third. And to hear Elvis talk about his time in detention is like hearing a montage of misery. A few days after Wendy left, guards woke Elvis up before dawn. They stopped on handcuffs and they put him on a freezing cold bus to a detention center in Mississippi. A couple months after that, he was strapped into handcuffs again and transferred to another detention center. This one was in Louisiana. And he was assigned to a bunk bed in a massive room he shared with about 100 other people. He says some people would sleep in the morning, others would sleep in the afternoon. It felt like they were taking turns keeping the place noisy constantly. It was hard to sleep. Plus, there were fights, and you had to wait in line with, like, 20 people to use the microwave. And the bathrooms had these toilets that were just out in the open, where everyone could see. He says being detained was so horrible. The only thing he could imagine being worse was death. And his only connection to the outside world was through the phone— Phone calls were expensive, about $3 for every 15 minutes. Wendy's older brother would put money in Elvis's account, and he called Wendy every day. And on one of their calls, Wendy recorded Elvis talking to the baby over the grainy jail phone. Afterwards, she'd play the recordings over and over again. She'd press her cell phone up to her belly so the baby would get used to Elvis's voice. Hola, mi amor, 
He says, hello, my love, my princess. I want you to know I love you very much. I'm your dad. I know you're not used to hearing my voice, but I think about you every day. The baby was due in early September of 2019, which was seven months after Elvis was first detained. And Elvis really wanted to be there when she was born. He says he thinks it's every father's dream. And the only way for him to achieve that dream was to get out of detention on bond, which is basically when a judge agrees to release you while you wait for your hearings in exchange for a cash deposit. An acquaintance of Wendy's brother recommended a lawyer, and the family hired him to take on Elvis's case. Over the next few months, Elvis had a credible fear interview and an early hearing that was sort of a false start. And records from immigration court hearings are hard to get. But through our collaboration with Documented, we were able to get audio recordings from Elvis's later hearings. And what would be clear in listening to those recordings is that Elvis encountered a long series of challenges and mishaps that, according to the reporting done by Documented, have become the norm in the immigration courts. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Immigration Judge Joy Merriman, appearing from the Batavia Immigration Court. We are here on a matter that is being conducted via video teleconference from the Richwood, Louisiana detention facility. The first hearing we have audio for is from early in the summer of 2019. At this point, Elvis has been sitting in detention for about five months. Wendy is about seven months pregnant. And before we get into this hearing, let me take a second to set the scene. Judge Merriman is sitting in a courtroom that's inside an immigration detention center in upstate New York. She's sitting there with a government attorney. And we have Fazia Mattingly here on behalf of the Department of Homeland Security. Elvis, on the other hand, is in a little white room inside the detention center in Louisiana, watching everything go down over a TV screen. He's sitting next to an interpreter. Who is conducting simultaneous translation. And their faces are being beamed onto another screen that the judge and the government lawyer can see on their end. This kind of setup has gotten way more common under Trump, even though a report from 2017 from the immigration court system itself found that having hearings over video conference could lead to due process issues. And actually, most people at this detention center in Louisiana have their cases heard by judges in upstate New York. Since the immigration system is federal, immigration judges can hear cases from anywhere. Elvis's lawyer is on the phone. His name is Benjamin Bradder. Mr. Bradder, did you get a copy of the notice to appear, sir? I did, Your Honor. And things start going wrong in this hearing pretty quickly. Elvis had thought that his lawyer had already submitted his asylum application, but it turns out he hasn't yet. So the judge gives him a few more weeks. And then the judge offers to talk about bond. Um, The respondent is on my docket for a bond hearing. Did you want to have a bond hearing today? which would mean Elvis would have a shot at getting out. Uh, Your Honor, actually, I'm having issues with my line. I don't know if you could put me on the back of the calendar for the bomb. But the lawyer is having some kind of issue with his phone line. So he's asking if the judge can hear the other cases on her schedule and then come back to him. Um, That's pretty hard to do. I hate to say it only because I am so overwhelmed that um, it's kind of do or die right now. Basically, the judge is saying, I'm too busy to do that today. She has a lot of cases to get through. So instead, she offers to reschedule. Okay, Mr. Bradder, see you on the, or hear you on the 21st. Thanks so much. Okay, you're very welcome. That's August 21st, which is more than a month away. And that means Elvis has to wait again before he can have another shot at getting out. And he is fuming. 
So another few weeks pass. There are a blur of sleepless nights and microwave lines. And when the next hearing rolls around, Elvis is somehow still hopeful. Esa fue la corte donde yo iba a salir confianza, iba a ver el nacimiento de mi hija. Porque ya faltaba poco tiempo para que naciera mi, mi nena. The baby is due in just a couple weeks at this point, and Elvis thinks he has a shot at being there for the birth. He was going to have the same judges before, and he liked her. He thought that she listened to people and was fair. And he says he heard a lot of other people in his detention center who had that judge did get out on bond. This is a continued matter for you. Your I-589, sir, was submitted by your attorney, Mr. Bratter. I have received it. And this time, his lawyer has submitted the asylum paperwork. However, when I called your attorney, Mr. Bratter, who asked to appear here telephonically today, he failed to answer the telephone and my call went through to his voicemail. The judge called the lawyer one time and the lawyer missed the call. Elvis's heart drops. And for the first time in these hearings, he speaks up. I was wondering if you can't call back. That's the interpreter. He's translating what Elvis says into English. There's no reason for me to call back, sir. I called and he didn't answer. I'm not going to give him a second chance. The judge says that letting lawyers appear over the phone is a privilege, which technically it is. A judge can require a lawyer to show up in person. We reached out to Benjamin Bratter to ask him what happened here. What he says is that the call went straight to his voicemail. He also says that he did call back, but that he couldn't get through to the judge, which other lawyers say does happen. The court cannot, and just, just I'll tell you why, the court has very limited time and resources. I still have 40 more cases this afternoon. My interpreter, the Department of Homeland Security's attorney, my legal assistant, they all need to take a lunch break because this is a very heavy document. Once again, the judge is saying that she's too busy. So, unfortunately, I would, I've had to reset it to my next date of availability, which I do realize is out to October 2nd. October 2nd. That's another six weeks. And Wendy's due date is in early September. October 2nd is too late. So Elvis is sitting in the little white room, watching his fate be decided over video conference. And he tries to fight back the only way he can, by injecting his very human dilemma into this very bureaucratic setting. Please take notice that I've been in prison for seven months and my wife is about to have a child. Sir, I do take notice of that. I'm sorry your attorney didn't. All he needs is for his hearing to get rescheduled a little sooner. But the judge says her schedule's too full for that. In that moment, as he realizes he's going to miss his first child being born, something shifts in the way Elvis is thinking about this whole thing. He's suddenly overwhelmed by this feeling that this is not going to work out. And so he asks the judge for something maybe unexpected. Your Honor, I just would prefer my deportation. No, it's going to pause, but I don't I can't wait much longer. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I am not comfortable. I cannot go forward with your deportation today. The judge says she's worried in that moment that he isn't making a rational decision. She says that if he's serious, he should submit the request in writing. I wish you the best. Please take time to think about what he's doing. La verdad, ese día sí lloré. 
Entonces ahí sí me dio depresión bastante fuerte. After he left the courtroom that day, Elvis cried. And then he got very depressed. It felt like this opportunity to be back with his family had been in reach and then had slipped through his fingers for reasons completely outside his control. Two weeks passed. And sure enough, around 2 a.m. one night in early September, Wendy started to have contractions. Her brother drove her to the hospital and her mom sat with her as she pushed. The baby was born just before 10 o'clock in the morning. Half an hour later, Elvis called. And he asked how she was doing. And Wendy told Elvis, congratulations, you're a father. Your baby was just born. Elvis had known this was coming. But still, in that moment, it was a lot to process. No te puedo decir que estoy, que estaba feliz. Yo estaba feliz que había nacido bien y normal, ¿no? pero, pero sí, estaba triste también por no haber estado. Esta es mi primera hija, mi única hija. He was glad the baby was born healthy, but mostly he was sad to have missed it. And he was sad about all the other things he was going to miss, like holding her while she was small. They named the baby Emily. Elvis decides to stick with the asylum process a little longer. Then he has another hearing that gets postponed. And then this story takes a strange turn. Elvis's lawyer, Benjamin Browder, gets suspended from the practice of law for a year because of misconduct towards past immigrant clients. Browder didn't want to comment on his suspension, and as far as we know, it didn't have anything to do with Elvis's case. But it did leave Elvis hanging. Unfortunately, there's a lot of unscrupulous attorneys or attorneys who get caught up in um, trying to to make money off of these these crises and just do a really poor job. That's Jody Ziesmer. She's an immigration lawyer at the New York Legal Assistance Group, which is a nonprofit legal aid organization. She says there's a bigger pattern of immigrants getting taken advantage of by lawyers who aren't that great. Elvis's case got referred to Jody, and she took a look at it, and she thought it was pretty strong. What makes this case distinct is that many people flee after they start getting extorted and getting threats by gangs. But this family actually opens an investigation not with the local police department, but with, like, basically the equivalent of the FBI. So, like, a national investigatory agency. The reason this matters is that to get asylum, one of the things you have to show is that the government of your country either persecuted you directly or didn't stop somebody else from doing it. So Jody thinks he has a decent shot. Elvis's next day in court is set for November of 2019. And it's actually two hearings. First, finally, a bond hearing. And then a really crucial hearing, potentially the final one, where the judge will decide whether or not he gets asylum. He's assigned to a different judge this time at a court in New York City. And again, he's going to attend virtually. But now Wendy can go in person. So she has her brother drive her to the courthouse that morning. And they have a hard time finding parking, so her brother drops her off. It's starting to rain as Wendy climbs out of the car with the baby in her arms. Emily's two months old now. They meet Jody in the courtroom and settle into one of the benches in the back. Two or three minutes later, the judge walks in. 
and Elvis's bond hearing begins. We're on the record, this is Immigration Judge Forrest Hoover at the New York Barrett Street Immigration Court. This judge, Forrest Hoover, is very new to the bench. He was appointed just a few weeks before. He's one of a couple hundred new immigration judges appointed during the Trump administration. And like many of these new judges, his last job was as a military lawyer. And he had basically no experience with immigration. He sits at the front of the room, and Jody sits at a desk across from him. Jody presents her arguments for why Elvis should get bond. Basically, she has to convince the judge that Elvis is going to show up for his court hearings and that he isn't going to hurt anybody. He has been a last record. He has passed a credible fear interview and has submitted his application for asylum. We believe he is neither a flight risk um, nor a danger to the community. And then, just like that, the judge simply said no. The court does find that the respondent is a flight risk and I'm going to... The judge denies bond. Denying his request for bond entirely, you could set a high bond and we could figure out how to come together with that. But he is, how is he a flight risk? And I asked for a legal reasoning for the denial. And he just turned off the record and walked out of the courtroom, which is pretty unusual. Jody says what should happen at the end of any ruling is that the judge explains why they're ruling the way they are. <laughs> I mean, that's what the judge's job is. So the fact that he just got up and left, I was perplexed. We reached out to the immigration court to try to talk to Judge Hoover. And what they told us is that immigration judges do not give interviews. So we couldn't ask him about this directly. But Jody says that in her experience, most judges give more detailed explanations of the law and how they think it applies to a person's situation. So they're all sitting there, waiting for the judge to come back in for the second part of the hearing. And then Jody decides to make use of having Elvis on the video screen. So at that point, I asked the government attorney if I could have the wife and the newborn baby come into like the actual court setting and introduce the baby to my client over the video so they could actually see each other. Wendy walks up to the TV, and it's a shock to see Elvis like this in his khaki detention center uniform. Then he starts to talk. When the baby hears him, she starts to smile and wave at the camera. Wendy thinks she recognizes Elvis's voice from that recording. To Elvis, it looks like Emily is trying to climb through the camera and into his arms. He's heard the baby over the phone at this point, and Wendy had sent him some photos. But he's never seen her move or smile or make a sound. Eventually, the judge comes back into the room. And now Elvis's second hearing starts, the one where the judge is going to decide whether he gets asylum. And at this point, Jody actually goes back to sit with Wendy in the back of the courtroom. So I had indicated to the judge that I would not be appearing as the attorney for the second, for the merits hearing on the actual immigration removal case. The reason she does this is Jody got Elvis's case pretty late in the game. In fact, only 10 days before his hearing. So even though she represented him for the bond hearing, she doesn't think she's had enough time to prepare to talk about his actual asylum claim. She says she'd normally spend months preparing. So she tells the judge, 
that I did not feel that I could ethically represent this person. And furthermore, that I don't think any good attorney could ethically represent the person in this scenario. And because of the issues with Elvis's old lawyer, Jody thought Elvis had a good case for getting some extra time. So they decided that Elvis would ask the judge for that time. And Jody sits down in the back to watch. Immigration Judge Forrest W. Hoover, the New York Grove Street Immigration Court, will hear today for continued removal proceedings in the case. Elvis tells the judge about his lawyer situation and about how he just started working with Jody. And the judge says, well, you've known about this hearing for a few weeks. Why didn't you request a continuance after you found out your attorney had suspended? A continuance is the legal term for asking for more time. He's saying Elvis should have filed the request before this hearing. The judge asks a couple more questions, but ultimately he comes to his decision quickly. So I have to deny the request for a continuance. He says, basically, that he can't find a reason to give Elvis more time. So Elvis is going to have to finish out this hearing on his own. He's going to have to argue for asylum for himself without a lawyer. And at the end, the judge will either grant it or he'll order him deported. Coming up on Latino USA, Elvis argues his case and his fate is decided. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. We're back. And before the break, a judge told Elvis that he couldn't have more time to prepare his asylum case, which means Elvis will have to present his case without a lawyer. Latino USA producer Alisa Scarce picks up the story now. The fact that Elvis wasn't going to have a lawyer for this part of the hearing was really not ideal. Asylum seekers who go to court with lawyers are way more likely to win than those who don't. But Elvis wasn't at a total loss. In a way, he'd been preparing for this hearing for months. Pues preparándome en todo momento porque yo agarraba experiencia en los demás casos y yo miraba que estaba funcionando y que no estaba funcionando. He'd talked to the other people in the detention center to see what worked in their cases and what didn't. He'd study U.S. government reports about human rights in Guatemala. He'd ask Wendy to look up statistics on extortion. 
Yo le dije, mira, me buscas esto y esto y esto, y ya me lo mando por correo. He'd tell her what to look up. And then Wendy would do some online research, and she'd print out the numbers and send them to Elvis in the mail. So in this moment, as he stands alone to defend himself at his asylum hearing, he's feeling pretty good about his arguments and the evidence that he's going to present. All right, sir, tell me what happened to you. Be a Elvis tells his story. He talks about his internet cafe and Wendy's mother's laundry business. He talks about the house they all shared. He talks about the extortion and how they reported it to law enforcement. He talks about how law enforcement didn't do anything to protect them. And Elvis says he could see the judge scratching his head over the screen. It seemed to him like the judge was considering the claim. All right, sir, thank you. As Elvis makes his closing statement, you can hear Emily fussing in the background. So then the judge takes a recess for about 30 minutes. He says he's going to take a recess and then come back and issue a decision. Elvis goes out into the hallway with the interpreter. And the interpreter tells him, you're doing a good job. Elvis says that made him feel a little more calm. For the first time in a while, he felt a little bit optimistic. Like maybe something would come out of this. So they go back into the courtroom. Wendy is sitting in the back and she is feeling super hopeful. She thinks in that moment that he's going to get asylum and that they'll finally get to be together again. She says she's filled with joy. I, for the record, all parties present of the court last recess are again present. The judge denies Elvis's claim. Once again, he just says no. I want to make sure you understand the reasons why. I found you testified credibly and I believe everything you told me. But there's certain, there's certain legal criteria for asylum that the court has to follow. Yes, I understand. And I found that you didn't need it, so I have to deny your claim, sir. Also, once again, Judge Hoover doesn't explain the specifics. Then the judge asks Elvis if he wants to appeal. And to everyone's surprise, Elvis says no. Very well. You'd like to accept the court's order as final and waive your right to appeal? Yes, I do not wish to appeal. What for? It would be useless. Elvis figures the judge knows the law. And he said he didn't qualify, 
So why would a different judge decide differently? Plus, what he'd heard about the appeal process inside the detention center was not very encouraging. Había visto yo gente que había, que estaba ya tenía cuatro meses esperando una apelación y podían ser seis. Todavía no me acuerdo los seis meses más cerrado. He'd seen people wait four months or sometimes even six months for an appeal to go through. And he says he couldn't stand to be detained for another six months. All right, sir, I have ordered you removed from the United States. Elvis is ordered deported. All right, sir, thank you. Best of luck to you. And the judge, like, concluded, went off the record, got up and just left the courtroom. And the government attorney also kind of like put her head down, wouldn't make eye contact, and also just left the courtroom. So, and by that time, I also say his wife was like openly sobbing, his arrest. He had other family members there as well. We were all kind of shocked. Jody has been sitting in the back of the courtroom this whole time, watching this all go down. And she'd been assuming that Elvis would appeal. Asylum is tough, but I feel like he overcame some of the hurdles that we usually see and some of the obstacles that have been purposely, I think, put in the way of people being able to win their asylum claims. So if he had gotten an appeal, hypothetically, um, like it wasn't a guarantee that he was going to get asylum, but it sounds like you think maybe he had a shot. Yeah, I think with correct legal advocacy, he would have had a decent case for, for winning. Yeah. Though it really wasn't a guarantee. When Jeff Sessions was the attorney general, he issued a legal decision that makes it harder for Central Americans in particular to get asylum. Between October of 2019 and March of 2020, more than 86% of Guatemalan's asylum applications were denied. That's a significant increase since the end of the Obama administration. A month after his final hearing, Elvis is still in detention, waiting to be deported. This call may be monitored or recorded. And he's still calling Wendy every day. They talk about the baby. They talk about how Elvis is feeling. He says he had a fever last night and couldn't sleep. He's frustrated that even now, after being denied asylum and refusing the appeal, he's still in detention, and he doesn't know how long he has left. He says, if this country can't help me, I don't want to be here anymore. He's really sick of being locked up. Elvis says the U.S. government wants to build a physical wall. But these laws are also a kind of wall. And he says what he's gone through isn't worth it. Elvis was deported in early January. He'd been in detention for 11 months, and the family says they'd spent more than $1,000 on phone calls. A few weeks after that, this is mid-February, I fly to Guatemala to meet Elvis in person. 
I visit him at a little house that's on the end of a residential street on the outskirts of Guatemala City. It's a neighborhood he thinks is safer than his hometown. And he's staying here with the family of an old friend. His room is bright with crayon yellow walls. There's a bed and a plastic chair and some stuff laid out on a trash bag on the floor. There are stacks of baseball caps and some watches. He bought them from wholesalers downtown and he resells them over Facebook. This is how he's trying to make a living these days. I say to Elvis, so you're really an internet guy now, huh? And I'm sort of joking around, but then I realize it's serious. He says it's a little safer this way, since he doesn't have to go out. He wouldn't feel comfortable opening a storefront again. This is Elvis's new reality. No salgo casi. No salgo solo. No, so, no salgo mejor. He says he barely leaves the house. And if he does, it's always with somebody else. Somebody who can give him a ride or pick him up. He doesn't go out alone. The threat of extortion is like this low hum under everything he does. On top of that, there's this feeling he brought back with him from the U.S. that he just can't shake. Like a disorientedness. He says he forgets what day it is. When he's out in the city, he gets lost and he forgets places he used to know. Sometimes people tell him things and he just forgets. But the most painful thing is to still be separated from his family, who he only gets to see over WhatsApp. Wendy looks tired. She was up late with the baby. Now she's breastfeeding. <laughs> Wendy points the camera down towards Emily. <laughs> the baby opens her eyes wide and stares straight into the camera. As they chat, the baby starts to fall asleep. They say goodbye. Elvis says he'll call back later. Elvis doesn't know when he'll get to see Wendy and Emily again. Wendy is still waiting for her own asylum hearing. He doesn't think it's safe for them to come back to Guatemala. And as much as he wants to be with them, he just can't imagine trying to go back to the United States. The process was so maddening and so painful that he says he'd rather be killed than get caught at the border trying to get back to his family.
This episode was produced by Alisa Scarce, Max Siegelbaum, and Mazen Sidahmed, with help from Julia Rocha. It was reported in partnership with the Wayne Barrett Project at Type Investigations and was edited by Sofia Palisaca. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Ginny Montalvo, Janice Yamoka, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raul Perez. Fact-checking by Nina Zweig. Special thanks to Type Investigations executive editor, Sarah Bluestein, and reporters Irene Tang, Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo, Irene Spezzamonte, Ralph Ortega, Hannah Beckler, and Grace Moon. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us on all of your social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by New York Women's Foundation. The New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.